they are fairly substantial, so we're going to work through them in small order, and we'll do the very best we can. Now, when we start to review any passage, we would start with the context. And Paul throws us a bit of a softball here, and he begins this section with therefore. And so the therefore is us looking back on what he has said, because that is going to give us the understanding and the context of what he has before us. So let's look at where we've been. Paul is separated from the Philippians. He's writing to them from a Roman prison. He has already expressed his great affection for them, something that he'll reaffirm for them in a moment. He has told them of his great joy. And he causes, and the causes for which that he will revisit those again today. And at the the end of chapter 1, he begins the section that represents the whole middle body of Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 27, he writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he sets out to explain in the subsequent verses what this worthy life looks like. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, tells us that it's a life of unity made possible through humility. He says, do not put on selfish ambition or conceit, but do put on humility and look to the interests of others. Then Paul builds to a peak in verses 5 to 11 where he explains the glory of Christ. Jesus as the supreme example of humility demonstrating obedience in dying on the cross. Paul is explaining what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. And so far, it is marked by humility and unity. And what will follow are more evidences, more markers, if you will, of a life worthy of the gospel and the consequences of living that life. Recall verses 9 to 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The obedience shown in verse 10 there, the bowing of the knee, the confessing of Christ, are first wrought, are wrought first by God the Father. Don't miss that. That's essential to everything we'll cover today. What he has already said and what he's about to say in this passage must hang together. The commands that Paul has already given and the ones that he's about to give us today are commands given in a context, in a setting. We can't take any one of these commands or phrases, tack them to a coffee cup, and pretend that they can stand on their own. No, all of these commands are in light of God the Father, executing his redemption plan through God the Son, Jesus, on the cross in the place of our forgiveness for sins, and sending God the Spirit to indwell each of us, to be able to do what he commands. Now, that's what we're following. That's what's come before us. That's what Paul has in view when he begins this section with, therefore. Now, before Paul gives them more explanation and more command, he reaffirms his personal affection for them. These are, in a sense, his children in Christ, and they are loved by him. But more so, he gives the example of why he is affectionate for them. And he says, as you have always obeyed. Now, of course, they are not perfect. But what Paul saw of them and from what he heard from them, they are striving to be obedient to Christ. They are making an effort to live lives worthy of the gospel. They are following Christ's example of humility, demonstrated in their obedience. And this makes Papa Paul proud of his kids. So as he transitions to commands with, so now... 
we get the sense that Paul's not introducing a new command to them, one that they didn't know or that they haven't already been doing, but instead he is affirming in them to do something to a higher degree. He says, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Paul is not with them, but he wants them to press in on this area of obedience. Paul is not with us, but he wants us to press in to this area of obedience. And this has application, particularly, uh, you can think if you were a parent. Now, when I was growing up, before I ever went anywhere, my dear mother would say, now, Bradley, you're going out and you're going to represent the Willock family. And what that meant was, is the whole weight of my obedience was tied to demonstrating everything that mom had already been pouring into me. Or in short, I'll be watching you. Behave yourself. Maybe this example resonates with you more personally. Think about your driving. What does your driving look like when you're all by yourself? Now, what does your driving look like when someone else is in the car with you? I'll do you one better. What does your driving look like when there's a state trooper behind you? I'm going to guess that those things are very different. This one time I gave one of my kids, Jude, who is not here this morning, uh, I gave him my GPS to make sure we were going where we're going, and it tells you how fast you're going. And every time I was one mile an hour over the speed limit, he informed me. Um, I mentioned I did that only one time. Obedience, when no one is watching, is demonstrated evidence of a heart that desires humility, one that submits to authority out of the joy of honoring God, not out of the fear of getting caught. So Paul is commending them. He says, you're doing great, keep going, and do so even more. And all of that is setting up the command, which will span the rest of verse 12 and all of verse 13. So if those were the appetizers, we're now ready for the main course. There are five phrases now that will come next that instead of looking them one by one, we need to look at them all together. Now, one of my favorite dishes is jambalaya. If you've ever had jambalaya, it is amazing. It is chicken and rice and sausage and all kinds of yummy goodness. But if you have just a bite of shrimp, are you having jambalaya? No, you're not. If you just have chicken, are you having jump? No. Rice? No. You have to get all of it in your mouth at one time to experience it. So now we're going to take a big bite of the next five phrases. We're going to get them all in our head at one time. And then we're going to look at them as a group together to make sure that we understand what we're looking at. Paul writes, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. So work out is the command. The first four statement is going to tell us how it's possible, and the second four statement is going to be the result. That's going to be the outcome. So work command for condition, for outcome. In fact, we see work three times, working out, working in, and working for. Paul's command here is to work out your salvation. Now, you must understand there is an infinite stream of heresy that has flown from this verse by taking it out of context. And by now, you have surely noticed that I have nearly exhausted myself and bored you to tears 
making sure you see that context. Because if we read this little phrase all by itself, what does it say? You, Bob, you, Sally, your salvation, your ultimate individual standing before God, that's your problem. Go figure it out. You go work it out on your own. You type A's out there. You go take the bull by the horns and you go get it done. You go wrestle down somehow your own right standing before God. And I will tell you now and hopefully show you that this is not what this passage is saying. This could not be further from the truth. You need only read ahead to chapter 3 and Paul will go on to explain the futile efforts he had to try to earn grace. So let's start by talking about salvation. What is salvation? That is a big giant Bible word. And what does it mean? Very simply from the dictionary, delivering from harm. Literally saved or rescued from something. From the Bible then, what do we need to be saved from? Paul tells us elsewhere in Romans 6.23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. Okay, that's another Bible word. What is sin? Sin is every act of doing or not doing that dishonors God. God is pure and perfect. The Bible declares him holy. We are not pure and perfect. We are therefore not holy and cannot interact with the pure and perfect. So when we die, the wages, what we've earned for our incredibly hard work here sinning all day, buys us a ticket to a place separate from the pure and perfect. The opposite of the presence of God is the absence of God, and that's what hell is. A place described elsewhere as conscious eternal torment. So because we are not pure and perfect, we need saved or rescued from our willful chosen path to hell. That's what we need saved from. Our default bent, going all the way back to Eve in the garden, is to the imperfect. So we need to be saved. We need to be rescued. And this is why we looked at Christ's example back in chapter 2. Knowing we needed this, God already came up with the rescue plan. He sent Jesus into history to live a pure and perfect life. And at his death, he then offered to exchange his pure and perfect for our sinful earnings, thereby saving us from hell, yes, but more than that, earning us a place in heaven. So in hearing that, what contribution did you or I make to this salvation? We brought our sin, right? We didn't do anything for the saving or the rescuing. God did that through Jesus. That's the eternal sense of salvation, final rescue. But there's a temporal sense as well, a rescue here and now in the moment. When I'm driving and I put my foot on the gas, I have a choice at that moment to obey the speed limit or not. And apart from an intervention of some kind, like perhaps a police car behind me, my sin will drop the hammer and off we go. We need an intervention in those temporal moments. We need something to cause us to act differently. And right here in verse 13, Paul tells us what it is. This working out of salvation is possible. Why? For it is God who works in you. There it is, the outside factor that brings about obedience. The kind of obedience that Paul is talking about here is God's active participation in our lives. And what does he say to the extent of God's participation? Look again, both to will in and to work for. God is at work in two ways. He is working first in our wills and then second in our responses. Do you see the totality of that? 
He's not just putting ideas in our head and hoping that we carry them out. He's empowering us to obey in ways that we cannot ourselves. Conversely, he's not putting his finger on our foot and forcing us to obey the speed limit. No, he's putting the will in our hearts, the desire, the want to obey in the first place. So in this matter of obedience that Paul is speaking of here, God is actively involved in every aspect and in every level of the saving. And so now this begs the question, if God is actively involved in every level of this, why is Paul commanding the Philippians to work out their salvation? Isn't that just taken care of by God? You've seen the coffee cups. Let go and let God, right? We just need to get out of the way. Go limp fish and just let God operate us as puppets. Or, or what about this one? God did the hard part and now I have to do the rest. No, that is, that is not the case. God's established order is not an either-or proposition. It is both and. It is not either I do or God does. It is both God does and I do. Mankind has exhausted themselves trying to make war between God's sovereignty, God's control over everything, and man's responsibility, us doing our part. Paul is writing on how to build unity in the church. So we are not going to make war this morning. We're going to make unity. In context, Philippian church, work together, work in unity, work as a team, as a family. This work is present continuous action. Work together now and going forward. Work together to build each other up. Work together to help each other grow in obedience. Take responsibility for each other. To not let your brother or sister sin, and when they do, restore them with gentleness. But make no mistake, it is our personal expression of salvation that needs to be worked out. Salvation is not an abstract concept. This is deeply personal. All of our testimony stories have the same melody, but different notes. You have to own this. And Paul says here you need to engage with others to do that. God is active in our midst. He's active in our decision. He's active in our willing. He's active in our working. And he commands us through Paul to work together with him and with each other. What a remarkable idea. We're not left to save ourselves. We're not merely isolated individuals that God is building up. But we can materially contribute to building each other up in Christ. How cool is that? I can help you. You can help me. We can work together to experience a greater degree of unity. And if we get this right, if we figure this out and we work together, what does it look like? And we see that at the end of the verse 13. It says, for his good pleasure. Wow, our demonstrated humility to work in unity along with God's willing and working in us, both individually and corporately, that makes God smile. It's like when I went out and my mom gave me that spiel, and after I got home, someone would say, Now that Bradley was such a well-behaved young man. Right? How do you think it made my mom feel? She put a massive investment in me. True, but I had to carry out the obedience, and the fruit was her joy. And that shapes how we work out the salvation. It says in fear and trembling. If obedience brings God's joy and makes him smile, then it's possible, by contrast, that our disobedience makes him frown and that, that maybe we should be scared of him. 
Psalm 2 is very helpful here, friends. It says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Here we see rejoicing, fear, and trembling mingled together. And I tell you what, if we only had verse 12 and we didn't have verse 13, this would be an absolute terrifying message. I I enjoyed this quote and I share it with you now. Behind every God-given imperative, that God telling us what to do, lurks a God-performed indicative. God telling us what he's already done. Behind every thou shalt, there is an I am. We don't operate out of a spirit of judgment, for we saw early in chapter 2 that Jesus has already been crowned. Judgment is past. God's willing and working assures our success. So let me conclude this first point with Matthew Harmon, who I introduced you to last week. Just as a gardener must cultivate the seed that is planted deep in the ground by watering, laying down fertilizer and removing weeds to ensure that one day a healthy plant will emerge from the soil for all to see, so must the believer cultivate the gospel seed planted in the soil of his heart by various means of grace that God has given to ensure that a gospel-shaped life will emerge from the transformed heart of the Christian. But even as all of the watering, fertilizing, and weeding in the world does no good if a seed is not planted, all of the means of grace that God has given will be of no benefit if the gospel has not been planted in the human heart by the Spirit of God. And he concludes with us, The believer must realize that one does not drift towards godliness. It only comes through intentional efforts, using the means God provides, all the while trusting God himself to produce the desired growth, and this is the hard part, in his timing. Our little community garden here of faith requires active participation by everyone, and it relies on God's active participation in everyone. Paul is encouraging the Philippians to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's proclaimed the humility of Christ. He's reminded them of God's provision and charged them to work in that manner. Now, Paul continues here to give them a very specific way in which they can build unity and manifest a life worthy of the gospel. And that's point number two. Point number two is hold. Now, there's no conjunction between what we just read and what we're about to see in this next three-verse sentence. Paul just kind of goes right at him and drops it on him. He's going to hit him with a command, and then he's going to explain the implications. So in verse 14, um, if the last one wasn't bad enough, this one's even harder. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, if we're trying to build unity as a goal, that seems pretty obvious, right? Now, what's grumbling? Grumbling is those whispered complaints, that talking behind back, those, those hushed tones. Do you think that would wreck unity? Yeah. What about disputing? So this ranges everything from nitpicking over preferences to Christians taking Christians to court. Think that would work against unity? You are right again. Does that have any place in the shadow of the glory of Christ that we've just explained? It does not. Remember, we're under the heading of obedience. So what is obedience without disputing and grumbling? It's basically telling the management that they aren't doing a very good job and that you could surely do better. 
Christ's obedience to the point of death set the bar for our obedience. So we should not be surprised here that Paul leaves us zero wiggle room. He says, do all things. What's included in all things? Just make something up in your mind. Yeah, that goes into all things. That's all. All things means all things. You can't separate the spiritual from the temporal. There is not a church Brad, a home Brad, uh, at work Brad, and on social media Brad. Our actions, regardless of where we are, scream our affections. How we work out our salvation demonstrates to others what we believe. There is no room here for a little grumbling or a little disputing in light of the glory of Christ, in light of his example, in light of his death and the incredible gift it made available to us. Our obeying is to be without even a whimper of grumbling, of grumbling, grumbling and disputing. Now, look back at your handout. Under the do command, Paul has a that and a so that. The that is going to tell us the purpose. Why did he put this command here? And the so that is going to tell us the result. So let's go one indent in. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. We are to be obedient. We are to work on our obedience. And we should work without grumbling or complaining. Why? Again, God moves first, and then we move in concert. God, through Christ, has made us children of God. So, let's go to John 1 for just a minute. I'll read to you 9 to 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, and we're going to talk more about that in a minute, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So here again, God has moved through Jesus, and this created the possibility for us to gain a status that we did not deserve. But in the context of our passage today, it allowed us to set a degree of attainment that was otherwise impossible. In our sinfulness, this blameless and innocent was not possible on our best day. Now in Christ, in Jesus, in the Spirit, it is possible every day. Christ transferred his pure and perfect to us, and so now when we fail, and we will, we are no longer condemned or hopeless. We can continue working to grow into who we are in Christ. And so because God is working in us, our goal should not be merely to squeak into heaven, but to strive to do so with ever-decreasing blemish. That's the working out. That's the, where we are working. Confessing sin, repenting of sin, seeking forgiveness, growing in holiness. That is going to take work. The idea of without blemish is pulled from this idea of Old Testament sacrifice. The animal that was to be the sacrifice had to be without blemish. And by our not grumbling and disputing, we will increasingly, by degree, by painful labor, by work, we will look more and more like Christ. Now, also like Christ, this doesn't mean that we won't still be accused. Oh no, we will. But you see here it says blameless and innocent. The accusations will come, but increasing obedience will render those accusations baseless. Now, Paul gives a contrast to emphasize his point. 
He says, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Anybody think we're living in a twisted and crooked generation? Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago, and they thought it was bad then. In fact, this is Paul referencing back to Deuteronomy 32. Listen to this. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. So 2,000 years before Paul, the Israelites rejected God's moral command, and Moses dubbed them a twisted and crooked generation. Another 2,000 years later, and the world around us is just as crooked and just as twisted as it perhaps ever was. Do you wonder if this book is still relevant? To their shameful credit, the Israelites were famous for their grumbling and disputing. Anytime the slightest thing went wrong, Moses, you did this to us. I'm going to go back to Egypt. Mom, are we there yet? Right? Every time. It is little wonder that Moses had to implore God repeatedly not to just wipe them off the map. But this is what makes the contrast so sharp. You surely know people. And sadly, some are probably Christians who fill their lives with grumbling and complaining. Christians should appear radically different. Our contentment, something Paul will talk about later in the letter, and our obedience should stand in stark contrast to what's going on around us. And he amplifies his point. He says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Here, Paul is dialing back to Daniel 12. Daniel has given a majestic prophecy of what will happen in the end. And in verse 3, he writes, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Daniel is saying, hey kids, in the future, things are going to get totally sideways. It's going to appear completely out of hand. Do you feel like that? Do you feel like maybe the world is kind of that way? I, I do. Things are going to appear off the rails. And in those times, the righteous will, what does Daniel say? Shine like stars. Connect that now to John 1. Remember, we read that, the true light. The death and resurrection of Jesus kick-started those latter days. The Philippians were living in the latter days. We are living in the latter days. We are now like the Philippians, children of God. And so our obedience without grumbling will be a beacon to those in a dying world. Think about the idea of a lighthouse. Waves crashing, rocks, a narrow passage. But it gives light and guidance to those who are seeking refuge. It stands in stark contrast to its surroundings. Because we have been remade children of God, because God is working in us, we have a chance to be beacons of hope in this world. When the sun is shining, lighthouses, even so, are often at the end of very lonely roads. When I got married, my wife and I were broke college kids, and our honeymoon, we basically took the money that came in the basket, and we hopped in the car, and we did a lap of the Chesapeake Bay, and we stayed at lighthouses, because that was kind of her thing, and I didn't really have a thing except for her, so that's what we did. Uh, and so it's interesting, if you ever try to go find lighthouses around the Chesapeake Bay, the directions are always the same. Turn on to such and such lighthouse road, and go until the road ends. Christianity may feel like a very lonely place in the midst of everything else, but we can take encouragement that God is working in us and he's working for us so that we might be able to hold out the light of the gospel to others. And that is indeed good news. Paul continues. He says, holding fast to the word of life. 
So here's the image. Think about a flooding river. Someone is trapped out on a limb in rushing water, and now think about a human chain. One person steps out into the water, holds on to another person, and another person. As we hold fast to the word of life, Jesus, we can extend out into these waters. We can extend out into this crooked and twisted generation and reach out a hand of hope and healing. That can be us. That should be us. That, frankly, must be us. And what result does Paul point to in this matter of obedience? He says, so that in the day of Christ, at the end, when Christ returns, when the books are open and God settles the accounts once and for all, at the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul's focus here is long game, folks. Paul recognizes that we're going to lose a lot of battles, but his hope is in God's promise to win the war. He hearkens back to Isaiah 49, where the prophet cries out to God, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with God. Perseverance will be required for the kind of obedience that Paul is commanding here. In this section, Paul began with his love for the Philippians and an affirmation of their obedience. He moved to the strong command and is now returning back to praise for them. There is a very real possibility that Paul could be martyred. He's in jail and his fate is completely unknown. And he points that out in verse 17. He says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. This is back to that idea of a sacrifice. Twice daily they would offer a burnt and a peace offering. And on top of that, something called a drink offering. Strong, unmixed wine would be poured out to symbolize complete and total dedication. Now Paul draws on this imagery to reinforce to the Philippians how pleasing to God is their obedience. It is a sacrificial offering of their faith and that Paul's spent life is merely icing on the cake. He hasn't labored in vain. Remember all the way back to chapter 1 verse 6 that we talked about last week? I told you we could hang out there forever. And I'm sure of this, that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's confidence is not rooted in the Philippians' obedience to this command. No, his confidence is that God, who is working in them and who is assuring that he will bring it to completion. And that's why Paul, he can say that he has glad and rejoices. In fact, he's so glad that he repeats himself and he asks them to join in. God is at work. There is work for us to do, but we're not alone in it. God is at work. So this is marvelous truth, right? But marvelous truth needs legs. What do we do with this, right? How do we take this and put this into practice? So let's pick a topic. Let's pick something. Let's go rip from the headlines. Let's talk about racial injustice today. We're living plenty of that right now. There's tons of that. Many are wrestling with how to respond to everything we see on TV and in the news. So how does this passage today inform our response right now as we're living here? Paul's repeated cry is for unity. And it doesn't seem like we have a whole lot of that right now. Let's look. We're going to start in the middle of our passage and we're going to work our way out. And we're going to see how we can apply this. So we're going to start with we are children of God. As children of God, we are image bearers. And as we have seen here, light holders. Every person is made in the image of God. 
I was recently talking with someone about Ocean City, and if you've ever been to the boardwalk there, you will see the most random assortment of humanity uh, that will cause you to scratch your head on a regular basis. You, you will see that, for sure, you will see that young lady wearing a third of the clothing she should. You will see a young man with his pants hanging off his backside. This woman with more piercings than I have metal change in my pocket. And the parents marching their trophy kids up and down the boardwalk. How do we respond? Do we go to unifying thoughts? Or do we grumble and dispute? Put on some clothes. Did you pull your pants up? What if instead we saw each of those people, every one of those people, as a person made in the image of God? That young lady, image of God. That young man, image of God. The woman, image of God. Those parents made in the image of God. That's how God sees them. So how do we get to that? That's going to require us to work out our salvation. It will require work. It will require active engagement. Unity does not come by grumbling. It comes by work. In physics, work is force over a distance. If we want this thing to move, we are going to have to move it. It's going to take personal material change. Remember, sanctification does not come by accident. Unity does not come by accident. On the contrary, there is an imperceptible drift away from these things. We have to turn and lean into it. Now, praise God, he is working on our will and he is working on us to do just that. So where do we start when we see injustice around us? The starting point is with each of us. We start here. We start not first with posting a bunch of stuff on Facebook, which might be helpful, but it's not the start. We start with heart issues. We ask ourselves and we ask others to ask us hard questions. Where am I personally harboring racial bias? Where do I have any blemish in my thinking as it relates to other image bearers of God? See, we start with the vertical. Remember, sin is always first and foremost between us and God. Before we take to the media, before we take to the streets, we have an obligation to go first before God and get clear with him. Then we can appear blameless and innocent. Then we can hold out the light of the gospel to others. Then we can hold out the hope in the word of life. But it starts with our personal obedience. Romans 12:2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Our old ways of thinking are what got us here. God's ways of thinking are what will move us forward. Romans doesn't say, go first, renew somebody else's mind. It starts with you, renew your mind against the standard of God. Ruthlessly inspect the patterns of your thought and obedience to Christ change through the power provided by the Spirit. Everyone is calling for change, and change is possible, but it doesn't start with riots. It starts by embracing what God has done, what God is doing, and are working out our salvation in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. The Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers put it well when he said, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. We will not drift into change. We must willfully choose to work, to expel prejudice, to expel bias, to expel pride by driving the light of Christ, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, into those dark areas of our lives. Darkness cannot stand against the light of Christ. Let me close by praying for you all.
Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have preceded us with a plan. Now, we did not start with a plan of our own, and we probably would certainly have not come to the same conclusion as you have, being wise and knowing the end from the beginning. So, God, we take great confidence in you today that you would provide for us the opportunity to stand before you and consider your ways and consider how we could honor you, not in doing this our own way, but in doing this your way. And in not doing this independently, Lord, but we do this alongside of you, where you are working in and working for us. And so, Father, I pray for each one of these dear saints here and online, Father, that you would minister this word to them. Help them to apply in their own soul how they would take this and work out their salvation, not in an independent way, but in a God-dependent way. That we would lean, lean hard on you to be the one to show us a proper path forward. I thank you that you have planned the rescue plan of Christ in advance, that we can take confidence that your will be done. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.